Are you ready to turn your investments into retirement income? Listen in as Jeremy Kyle and his guests reveal ways you can make smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions to achieve your ideal retirement. You will learn more about your money so you can feel better about your money and make better money decisions. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into a consistent income. And today we are finishing up our series on how to fix America. We believe that politics is broken. I think you might believe the same thing as well, too. But part of this, uh, part of this series, How to Fix America, we've talked about health care. We've talked about the tax system. We've talked about Social Security. And I've brought on a great guest for you, Mike McCabe. Uh, he's been around Wisconsin politics for quite some time in an interesting uh, way that he's been part of the Wisconsin politics. And he very much believes that politics is broken. But uh, instead of complaining about it, he's written some books. He's trying to do something about it. So, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Yep. Now, I was just at a, a podcasting convention trying to learn more about podcasting. I've had 100 episodes now. I was telling everyone down there, the reason I went is I'm trying to make the next 100 episodes uh, even better. And I shared with the friends and colleagues I was meeting down there that I'm getting political a bit for this first time ever. And they all said, that's a horrible idea because anytime politics gets brought up, all people care about is, are you on my side or are you on the other side? And they said, don't do it. I said, I think my audience, my listeners are smart enough to figure this out. And we've just taken the approach that there are things that seem to be wrong in America and there are things that people agree on. Can we just focus on the things we agree on first? And I, I believe that's about uh, how you're approaching some of these. Well, absolutely. In so many ways, we have become tribal about politics and you're either on our side or you're evil. And and that's a that's really, I think, a sick and very twisted attitude. But it's also understandable because the major parties go to great lengths to actively seek to put us at each other's throats. And, and it's a very conscious strategy to to demonize the other side and to get everybody thinking that you you're either with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, you're evil. And that's not the way it used to be. I, I go back far enough in Wisconsin politics, back to the early 1980s when I first was working around the state capitol. And at that time, Democrats and Republicans worked together and, and not only were able to deal with each other in terms of doing this people's business, but then they would socialize together. They would they would go to taverns together. You know, staffers would join volleyball leagues or softball leagues or bowling leagues together. They would go out to dinner together. That has has really disappeared, and I think that's a sign of the sickness that has taken root in our politics. Yeah, and I think the big problem is that it's a focus on politics and not a focus on the personal side. These are people too, right? Uh, I'm a Christian, and I, I, I'm a big believer that every person is a child of God, no matter how much you hate them. And even if you do hate them, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are a part of a faith community, generally the idea of love your enemy 
is is universal, and yet it's so hard when it gets to politics. Uh, so I like what you talked about. There are personal connections that the staffers and the politicians had before they got into the politics on there. So let's talk a little bit personal. Let's talk about you because you haven't had a regular job for a year. We're a retirement-focused uh, podcast, and you told me recently that you left kind of um, – a, your regular job about a year ago. You took some time off to run for governor even. We'll see if we get into that at, at all. But how does how does somebody do this, right? We're helping people make great retirement decisions. How did you and your wife give yourself the leeway to take some time off and focus on some passion projects? Well, we really had a strategy of of living below our means for our entire adult lives. And I think that's been our secret is We've lived very modestly. Uh, we've had sort of a minimalist approach to possessions. And so we've been able to keep expenses in line with our incomes. In fact, we've always underspent our, our incomes. And that enabled us to do a lot of savings. And that, of course, then positioned us. I'm 62 now. And I'm at, at a point where where I don't have to have a regular job, a regular paycheck. Um, I do some consulting work for some nonprofit groups, helping them build their organizations and handle communications. I, I've got a lot of connections to the nonprofit world because I ran several nonprofit groups over the course of my professional life. But it's nice to be in a position where, where I don't have to have a paycheck coming in every week or every month. I can I, I can live off savings at this point. My wife still does work. She's a social worker, so she has a, a regular paying job. And I've done, but I've not had a regular paying job for a year now. But we, neither of us would have to work at this stage. We do the kind of work we really love doing, we enjoy doing, that, that we find rewarding. That's a wonderful feeling to have. But that was made possible by living below our means for an awful lot of years and and being very religious about saving about making sure that we weren't spending our entire paycheck we weren't ever um, allowing ourselves to live paycheck to paycheck and that that's been our strategy neither of us have made huge sums of money we've never had a six-figure income uh either one of us for our entire professional lives but yet uh, we were able to put aside a lot of money for retirement and, and also get a son through college. And, and so that, that's been our approach is, is just uh, living modestly and, and being really, really aggressive about saving money. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing a little bit about what you've done personally. It, it just goes to show there's really only thing you have to do in finances. Spend less than you make. The rest is just details. You get that thing right, you're going to do uh, pretty well. And good for you, too, to basically putting yourselves in a position where you can work because you want to, not because you have to. And when you can do things that you want, usually it's the more fun stuff that you get to do. So that's great. That's good for you. And I appreciate you just sharing that real quick. <laughs> yep. so let's talk about some of the problems in America. And I read both of your books, and I've got a feeling if you had to sum up the problem with politics in one word, that word would be gerrymandering. Is that correct? How would you feel about that? That's a very, very important word if you're, if you're going to look at the root causes of political dysfunction. It's not the only problem. Uh, money in politics is a huge problem. 
really the the uh, overwhelming and and I think toxic partisanship that has begun to to take root. But gerrymandering very very clearly contributes to that toxic partisanship. When you think about it, what what gerrymandering is? It's a way of drawing political districts so that they are they will produce results for the party in power. They draw districts in a way that really makes it impossible or virtually impossible to beat the party in power. They pack as many people from the, as many opposition voters into into a few districts and then they spread the the rest of those opposition party voters across very, very widely across many other districts. And what they've done is instead of having competitive districts where it's pretty close to 50-50 and it could go either way, they've turned those 50-50 districts into 60-40 or 65-35 districts. And what that does is it naturally produces representatives who are fierce partisans because they no longer have to talk to the other side. They no longer have to appeal to voters who might vote for the other party. All they have to do is turn out their own party's voters and they win. And, and, and that, what that's done is it's, it's eliminated the, the, the middle in our, in our legislatures and in Congress. There aren't any people who are being produced in these 50-50 districts where it could just as well be represented by a Democrat as a Republican. Instead, it is a, it is a solidly partisan district. So those, those politicians have, have been unable to really talk to or listen to or even understand voters from the other side. And that, I think, has contributed in a huge way to the polarization the division, the very toxic partisanship that we now see in politics. So yes, gerrymandering is a very, very big force. And it's, it's just a way of drawing political districts in a way that's tailor-made for the re-election of those who are already in power. Yeah, and I like how you talked about uh, understanding the other side. I'm blanking on the business guru that said, here's one of the secrets to success. It's seek first to understand. And he's trying to help people make good decisions in business. And in politics, if you want to make good decisions, you ought to seek first to understand. But when you're gerrymandered and you're representing a district that you don't have to understand, you could completely ignore the 30 or 35% of the other side. Why would you bother? And of course, this creates a bunch of other uh, problems. A lot of the elections are uncontested. There's absolutely nobody going up against the incumbent or the majority political party in the district, because why would they? It's just a waste of time of money, right? And then uh, with that too, a lot of times, the kind of the choice of who is in office gets uh, happens in the primary. And not too many people pay attention to the primary when it's the general election that most people pay attention to. It's like it's already been decided because the Democrats have decided, you know, who's going to be the person in the primary or the Republicans have decided who's going to be the person in the primary. Now, you'll see I'll see if you you like my <laughs> the way I've gone about this. Uh, we just had the primary election. Right. And we're in Wisconsin. So uh, the primary election is closer to us now. This is releasing. Uh, one week before the general election coming up for the the midterms. But uh, just recently, there was the primary election in Wisconsin. 
And in Wisconsin, it's interesting for uh, a lot of people that aren't in Wisconsin. It's I'm gonna, I don't know if open primary is the right word, but you can vote in any primary. You just can only vote in one. So if you decide this year you want to vote in the Republican primary or next year vote in the Democrat primary, you don't have to declare. Well, I'm going through and you see the uh, Democrat primary. There's a bunch of names there, but everyone's dropped out. <laughs> you know, The Republican primary, there's a couple names there, but everyone's dropped out. And then you look at the local races and there's just one name there. Uh, and so it, it basically did not matter at all who I voted for in any election because you you had the the party bosses, the kind of handshake deals have already happened in the places where there are people on, on the ballot. And nine out of 10 other places, there's not even another person on the ballot. So I just, I went, I wrote my name in on every single one. I said, <laughs> I don't know who these people are. They're gonna win anyways. This is my protest vote against gerrymandering, uncontested elections. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but hey, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a blow against the man maybe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Jeremy, you made some really important points. One of them is is this problem of uncontested races, and and of course the way districts are drawn, the the partisan gerrymandering that's done aggravates that problem. What what I've said for years is that politicians serve us best when they serve in fear, when they have a healthy fear of not winning the next election. That's when they're most accountable to us. That's when they're on their toes. That's when they're listening to us. When they have some fear that maybe they will be removed from office. They, and, and, the, and we've lost that. In so many of these races, the, the representatives, as you say, they run unopposed. There's one name on the ballot. Well, they have no fear of the electorate when they are running alone in that race. So competition is really important. And you know, there is a better way to do this. I've advocated for years to take the process of drawing political boundaries out of the hands of the elected officials and give it to a either a nonpartisan agency or a, or an independent commission to draw those district lines which would give us many more competitive districts and that creates representatives who are on their toes listening to the voters and paying attention to to the will of the people that that would be such an advance but you know you also mentioned that not very many people participate in primaries. In a typical primary election, even if there's a big race like governor or U.S. Senate on the ballot, no more than about 20 or 25 percent of eligible voters participate. If 50 percent participated, that would totally change the kind of representation we have. Instead of extremists who only have to appeal to a very narrow extreme base in their own party, you'd have a lot more people who are listening to the broader range of voters and are reflecting what the what the average citizen wants. If we could just get primary participation from 20 to 25 percent up to 45 or 50 or 55 percent, it would be revolutionary. And, and of course, if if you changed the way districts are drawn so the politicians couldn't play these these games to rig the the outcomes in their favor, then you would also have less partisan bickering, less division and and dysfunction. You'd have politicians who are way better at talking to voters on the other side because they would have to. Yeah. There's so many great things in there. Uh, I think I read once that America has the politicians that they 
uh, didn't vote for because they're just not showing up to vote. And so they're, they're allowing just the system to happen. And you wrote in your books that the vast majority of voters hate both major parties with a passion. And, and yeah, we still keep getting this situation that's out there. I also like how you mentioned you ought to vote for, or if you're voting, you're, you're keeping the politicians accountable. And that's a better deal than what happens on the other end where the politicians are taking us as voters for granted. And you, you talk, you talk about both sides where the Republicans are taking the rural votes for granted. They're just, Oh, they're going to vote for us, but they don't bring in a, a rural focus agenda. Right. And then you get the opposite where the uh, Democrats just assume that the urban voters are going to vote for them, but don't necessarily have an agenda that helps the, uh, the urban voters. And I think a lot of people would uh, agree with that. You said something that I found very interesting. Uh, I'm in a county that's uh, more Republican-ish, and you know, I'll go with the stereotype that the Republicans don't care so much for unions. That's that's maybe a good stereotype, or I don't know if it's good, but that is a stereotype, <laughs> a stereotype that's probably true. But something you said in there is so interesting that one problem is that there are a lot less working-class unions, which basically means the only unions out there are government worker unions. So that's just an interesting tactic that if the if the Republican Party is maybe against kind of the government, really, I think they might want to be more against the government worker unions and against the, the union bosses, that perhaps a way to, I don't know, maybe bring down the tension is to have more unions that represent a broader class of people. That's it. I'm sure you can expand on that more than I just did in a better well, way. So let's, let well, me hear we, about that. We used to, it, it, even in our lifetimes, there was a time when, when almost every American family had a union member in it. Um, not everybody in, in that family was unionized, but almost every American family had a union member. And now there is very little unionization in the private sector. It's almost disappeared entirely. So the last bastion of union involvement is in the public sector. It's it's the the government workers who still have union representation, and and uh, and so now a, a lot of American families, there's not a single member of the family, not not one of the sons or daughters, not the mother or father, not the grandparents, who have any union affiliation whatsoever, and the only ones who do are typically the ones who have public sector jobs and. And I'm, and I think that's really changed the way working people are represented politically. It's it's really changed how working class people have a voice in both in our economy and in our democracy. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com, use the number or spell it out, you'll get there either way. 5stepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the rest of the show. 
Yeah, and I love how you said working people because uh, everyone thinks that it's a left-right system. You know, left is Democrats and right is uh, Republicans. Uh, and you mentioned uh, several times it's really more of a, a top-down and up-down where it's the, the top 1%, it's the government workers, it's kind of like the protected class are being protected by the politicians, and then there's everybody else. And if Americans were to kind of get out of the left-right system that pits them against other Americans and were to think of it in the up-down system, that's the reality, that you've got the up system of politicians, the 1%, the government workers, they're the ones that, uh, that's it's up-down is a, a better representation of what's going on in America. Yeah, you know, the, the book I wrote back in 2014, it's called Blue Jeans in High Places. There's a chapter in that book that that speaks to this very thing. And that ended up being the chapter that that caught the most attention and that got more people thinking and talking than any other part of the book. It, it just fascinates me how we've been conditioned to think left to right when it comes to politics. And are, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you somewhere in the middle? Are you a moderate? We've been trained to think horizontally about politics. And what that does is, you know, if, if you happen to be someone who sees themselves as a conservative, you're on the you're on the right, you see people who are who call themselves liberals on the left and you and you feel very far apart and you see them as the enemy. A magical thing happens when you stop thinking horizontally and you flip that political spectrum on its head and you think vertically instead from top to bottom. And when you think about, and I'm not just talking about, about who has the most money and who has the least. I'm also talking about who has the most power in our society and who has the least, whose voices are amplified in our society and who, whose voices are muffled or drowned out altogether. When you think in that way about the, about the have lots and the have littles, in society, most people tend to put themselves somewhere in the middle or slightly below the middle of, of that vertical spectrum. I, I talk about um, royals and commoners instead of liberals and conservatives. Mm -hmm. You know, there are the, sort of the royals of our society, the royalty of our society, and then there, there is the common working people. And, and most people out there, of course, identify as sort of a common working person, they, regardless of their profession or occupation. So they really put themselves pretty much in the same spot in the political spectrum. But that's where the political establishment has trained us to think in a way that puts us at odds with each other and puts us at each other's throats where you could think about politics in a different way. And there's this chapter in that book, it's titled Thinking Vertically, that would have a tendency to unite people who are now hopelessly divided because they would start to see themselves as basically in the same place on the political spectrum as somebody else who currently they think of as the enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's great. We've talked so much about kind of the problems <laughs> with America. I want to get some solutions coming in because that's what you wrote about in your recent book. It's Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. Uh, besides that being a great title, you know, from a literary sense, that's a great, great job there. But uh, we'd love to get some hope. We, uh, it's interesting to me, being from Wisconsin, that a lot of hope has found uh, historical situations in Wisconsin. So tell us more about, um, about this hope. Like, What's what's the good news? Well, the good news is you write that innovation happened twice in America 
in Wisconsin. What Talk about this political innovation that has already happened previously in our history coming out of Wisconsin. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think we can find hope and really find comfort in history. If you look back through history, I think you realize that, that we don't face anything today that we haven't faced before and overcome. We're in a, we're in a, at a point in our history where I, I don't think I've seen our politics quite as messed up as it is today in my lifetime. But if you go back before my lifetime, I was born in 1960, you go back earlier and there, and it was eerily similar kinds of conditions. You, you go, you go back to the, uh, the late 1800s and, and our, our politics was a cesspool. There was rampant corruption. One of the stories I often tell when I go out and speak to groups is, is I, I talk about the fact that it used to be completely legal to bribe public officials. For the first half century of statehood, it was legal to bribe public officials in Wisconsin. And then people rose up against that corruption and, and bribery was banned in 1897. Of course, Wisconsin became a state in 1848. So for that first half century, bribery was a common practice and it was perfectly legal. Now you go, you can go to prison for bribing a public official. And, and when Wisconsin took actions like banning bribery, that opened the door to all kinds of other reforms that benefited common people. And and, uh, and, and you really, you saw our government made much more responsive to the will of the people. And, and you saw things like unemployment compensation and workers' compensation were created in Wisconsin before they were created anywhere else in the country. Social security was invented here in Wisconsin. That's, that's something that it's a, it's a national program but it was invented in Wisconsin. And so Wisconsin became this laboratory of democracy and this laboratory of innovation, but it really traced back to the actions of some very brave people and, and hardworking people in the late 1800s who said, enough of this business of bribing these officials and, 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 and just a few benefiting at the expense of everybody else, let's make this state a place that works for everybody. And, and so when you think about something like social security that we all take for granted now, you know, you, you just, you just assume that that's a birthright. It didn't always exist in America. And, and it was invented right here in Wisconsin. This is the birthplace of social security, but social security would not have happened unless our political system had been retaken from crooks who were sort of lording over uh, elected officials in, in those days of the, of the late 1800s. Uh, so, you know, and then you, you get to the depression, there were immensely hard times. World War II, of course, was an, an incredibly difficult challenge. So you go back through American history from the civil war to the, to the depressions of the, 1800s the, in, in the Gilded Age, you go to the Great Depression, World War II. This country's been through a lot and, and the Republic has endured. So we don't face anything today 
that hasn't been faced and overcome before. I hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, are we headed for civil war? Or they seem to suggest that America's best days are behind her. Or how are we going to possibly get ourselves out of this mess? That's where we can take comfort in history. And that's where we can draw inspiration from history because people faced challenges, traumas, every bit as great as what is being faced today or greater. And they, they beat those odds and they overcame those challenges and, uh, and made, our, made our state and our country even stronger. And that, that's our birthright. If, if you grew up in Wisconsin, that heritage is our birthright. And I don't think my generation has done a particularly good job of taking care of that birthright. We've allowed our politics to become a cesspool again. And, and, and we need to summon the courage of those who came before us and, and basically repeat history. We don't have to make history. We just have to repeat history. Yeah, you got it. And you're certainly doing your part. You've led a few nonprofits that are trying to clean up uh, politics. And you've written a few books. You've got Blue Jeans in High Places and Unscrewing America, Hints and Hopes from the Heartland. We're going to link to those books in the show notes. So go ahead and purchase those books. They're great books. I've read them both. And actually, uh, first three people that email me, podcast at kylefp.com, and ask for one of those books, I'll send the book out to you uh, directly. So love to have people listening or reading those the, those books. Well, uh, Mike, before we go, I've got one last question for you. But before we go... Tell us, what's the best way for people to uh, reach out to you or learn more about the, the work or the, the books you, you've got? Well, people can find me on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. So people can look me up on social media and, and reach out and message me that way. I've also started blogging recently. I'm on the Substack platform. So mikemccabe.substack.com. People can find me there and, and also communicate with me directly that way. So yeah, I, I just, I think, having people reach out and, and engage in conversation. It's the way I learn. It's the way I gain insight on what's going on. It's so important for us. We all live in bubbles. And I, I think in politics, unfortunately, there are these partisan bubbles that we live in. And all of our news is sort of tailored to sort of reinforcing our views. And we don't hear what the other side hears. It's so important to to consciously get outside our bubbles and talk to people who don't necessarily think like us. I learn so much when I have those conversations and, and it's how I grow. Uh, it's by talking to people who don't think like me and who perhaps disagree vehemently with, with how I feel about things. Those exchanges are crucial. So I, I do really welcome people to reach out to me on social media or through Substack and, uh, and, and help yeah, I, I, I certainly will never hesitate to share my own thoughts and challenge people to think about things. But I also really treasure the opportunity to hear other people's thoughts and 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 learn from that. Yeah, I know you're just not just saying that because I've seen you on social media uh, for years now, and you're definitely uh, welcoming, accepting, finding uh, different viewpoints and, and sharing how you feel about things, which is, uh, in a, in a pleasant manner, I must say as well, too, which is, which is a, a good thing. Good. Well, we'll link that's hard to, to, that's hard to find. On social hard to find. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Well, we'll link to all your socials and your, uh, sub stack that, uh, blog too. And of course, if anyone wants to get more of our podcast, you can go to retirement-reveal.com 
or check out our fivesteprepayrmentplan.com to learn more about what what we're doing. But Mike, we've got our final question for you and trying to make things practical. What is the number one tactic that everyday Americans can do to take back the power in the US? Resist the temptation to curl up in a ball and tune out politics. Engage. Um, it, it's the only way. And, and I understand the temptation to just curl up in a ball, to turn, to tune out politics, because it, it's tough to listen to what's being said out there these days. But that's exactly the wrong impulse. So uh, the first step, the most important step, is having the courage to engage and to speak up and to and to reach out to people who who may think you're evil. Uh, it's the only way we can get out of this trap. It's the only way we can be, begin to rebuild a sense of of shared purpose in our country and and a, a shared fate for our country. Yeah, you got it. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. This has been great. I don't know if we fixed American politics today in half an hour, but you're making a step in the right direction. I'm asking everyone else to make a step in the right direction. Thanks for coming on, Mike. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit retirement-revealed.com to learn more. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal, accounting, or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For complete details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is a part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.